Hi, everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of teaching and learning. I'm Ryan Rudzeski, here with Greg Baer, and we're the co-authors of When You Wonder, You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. This is a podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. On today's episode, we're talking with Jenny Anderson, a veteran journalist whose career includes stints at the New York Times, where she covered Wall Street for more than a decade before turning her attention to learning in schools. Her stories on the science of learning, the art of parenting, and the future of schools appear in The Times, in courts, and well beyond that. Jenny Anderson, welcome to Remaking Tomorrow. It is such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So you began as a financial journalist. You were covering Wall Street. You were an award-winning journalist in the lead-up to the 2008 financial crisis here in the United States. So let's start with the obvious question. What sparked your switch to education and schools? Was it just a simple change of assignment, or did you see the two sectors as related in some way? I did not see them as related, but I did always want to be an education journalist, and I got completely derailed early on and then kind of fell in love with financial journalism. So sort of for 20 years, just went in a different direction. But at age 16, I read Jonathan Kozol's Savage Inequalities and just simply thought I want to do what he just did, which was completely change how I thought about everything. And it was so powerful, his ability to capture a place, to frame a problem, to convey a story. I grew up in quite a sort of affluent bubble. He exposed me to a part of the world and to things I hadn't seen before. And I just, I really wanted to do that. But I very circuitously ended up in financial journalism. Honestly, I loved it. It was really interesting. It was demanding. And I worked with excellent people. And I learned so much every day. I mean, learning is a theme that we're all familiar with here. It moved fast. And it was constantly changing. And I covered different aspects of it. My very first beat was the defined contribution beat, which sounds so boring. And even that was interesting. It's interesting to think about your career, and covering finance is probably not so much different than covering the field of education. So I suspect your coverage of the financial sector affects the way that you look at education. So I would say probably triangulation, data, and lived experience. I relied very, very heavily on data. If there's, a, there's a maxim in journalism, trust but verify. Like I think after covering many years of Wall Street, I'd flip that. I'd say verify and definitely don't trust. There are a lot of sharks on Wall Street. There's a pretty massive PR industry that's trying to spin you one way. A lot of people are trying to prevent you from getting information. The biggest difference is the culture, right? I think the culture of Wall Street is up or out. That's kind of the way it works. You know, you get a million dollar bonus and you demand why it wasn't two. It was a fundamentally different place, but it taught me to really dig in and to question hard and to question many people to get a lot of different people's stories. Make you think that actually all of that's extremely important for education. You ask a student about their experience in a classroom versus a teacher versus a parent versus an administrator, you get really quite wildly different stories. And from that has to come some version of what's happened. And so I do think that idea of really collecting a lot of different voices, the idea of using data as much as you can. One of the things that shocked me the most when I got to education was the paucity of information. On Wall Street, there's a ton. I mean, there's third-party providers, there's the banks themselves, public reports. There was just a lot of information to draw from. And I got to education, and other than the OECD and sort of standardized tests, I found it super challenging to find ways to 
quantify. It felt either big data sets or anecdotal. So that was something that I've, and I continue to struggle with that today. But I, I would like to think that it taught me to be tough. There's an proclivity when you're covering education. Good people are teachers. You know, parents are often doing the best they can. Like, there's a benefit of the doubt, which is useful. But I do think we have to also bring an air of skepticism and uh, hopefully a desire to verify and to triangulate. And I hope I bring a little bit of that edge to the beat. And that's not to say, by the way, that I don't think other reporters do that. I think the best ones absolutely do. But my own personal experience would be, you know, I was pretty consistently lied to <laughs> for 20 years <laughs> covering Wall Street. So I got quite used to that. And I think the hardest thing covering education is I don't think that happens as often, but it does happen and it maybe happens for different reasons. And you still have to kind of wear that skeptical hat and dig in a little bit and push back a little bit and, you know, to borrow your language, wonder. Well, this is what we need. I mean, and you take data and you talk about it in a plain spoken way, right? We're so driven by emotion in the field of education and for many good reasons, to be sure. But we need to confront ourselves with the data as it presents the reality as it really is for us. It's so challenging because what's happening in one classroom isn't necessarily happening in another. And, you know, it's kind of rising above the sort of the anecdote, the one practice, the one program, the one study. But somewhere between that and the, you know, OECD's sort of 498 page reports on PISA. And speaking of data and being lied to and needing to give other people the benefit of the doubt, you also wrote a book about marriage. <laughs> In 2010, you wrote a book called It's Not You, It's the Dishes, which applies economic principles to marriage and married life. Can you just tell us a little bit about that book? Yes, I had just gotten married. I had been covering behavioral finance on Wall Street. A lot of some really large hedge funds were employing sort of behavioral finance to understand why we make some of the very rational decisions we make. And they were trying to get traders to trade better, to make more money. That was their goal. It was very simple. Think billions, right? So the psychologist who's on staff there, they were doing that. And a colleague at the Wall Street Journal said, I think we could apply this to marriage. We were sort of comparing notes on this. It was her idea completely. And it was a brilliant idea. And I said, yes. And like three seconds later, we had written out a book proposal on the back of a napkin. <laughs> and we're able to sell it pretty quickly. I got married quite late. My husband has a big personality. And I was like, oh, my God, how is this going to work? So I was sort of <laughs> grappling for anything I could use in my own marriage. And I also just loved behavioral economics and behavioral finance and just the idea that classical economics is based on the notion that we make very rational decisions with full information. And that is so clearly a crock of malarkey <laughs> that I was very intrigued with why we make mistakes, why we do things that aren't in our self-interest. You know, why would we be mean to the person we're meant to spend the rest of our lives with? That makes no sense. And yet anyone who's been married for 15 <laughs> seconds... I can see that it happens every once in a while. So it was, it, was a, it was a bit of a lark, but it did intersect with what I was reporting on at the time, which was the use of behavioral finance in trading firms. And the idea was presented to me by my co-author, Paula Schumann, who was totally brilliant. And it was kind of off to the races from there. So let's bring you forward a bit, because much like you, I came to parenthood a bit late, and my kids are now in late elementary and middle school and we found ourselves in dealing with another crisis, the way that you navigated a crisis back in 2008 in the financial industry. Now we've faced a pandemic. What are some of the things that you've been noticing 
as we reach a post-pandemic moment versus where we were just a few years ago before the pandemic set in upon us? And what are some, maybe some lessons learned from that earlier crisis in the financial industry that maybe we should be looking to right now as we navigate what's happening in the field of education? Gosh, two very different crises. I feel like the biggest lesson from the 2008 crisis was you cannot have a vacuum of accountability. Very, very few people were held accountable for what happened and the damage that was done to the economy, to people's lives, people's homes. And the institutional response to that crisis in the form of the Fed lowering interest rates and really goosing the economy has had profound negative effects on inequality. I don't know how I would relate those to the pandemic now, though I would say I would love to see some really very hard-nosed accountability about decisions to shut schools and to keep them shut for as long as they were shut. I was living in the UK for the pandemic. Schools opened much sooner. We shut in March like everybody else in the world. They opened schools in June for key classes, and in September they opened for good. We had to shut for six weeks when the Delta variant came, but we were all dealing with the same science and somehow the priority here, they got them open. So one of the things I love about journalism and journalists is the accountability piece of it. And so I really do hope to see accountability around that. I understand there was a lot of fears. I understand there was poor information. I understand the infrastructure of schools is terrible. And there was a lot of very legitimate fears. But at the end of the day, I think children pay the price for keeping those schools shut as long as they did. But we need to do better. This is Greg Bear along with Ryan Rudzeski. We're talking with Jenny Anderson, a longtime education journalist and host of the Learn It podcast. So Jenny, let's talk about this podcast. You are a remarkable storyteller in your articles, in your books, and on this platform. And let's just talk about a sampling of some of your recent guests on the Learn It podcast. You had the CEO of a startup in India. You had folks who are bringing online learning to students in rural South Africa. You had a superintendent from the state of North Carolina and the head of a nonprofit organization in Columbia that reaches half a million kids. So what's the thread that holds all of these stories and your guests together? And what is it that you hope that you and your listeners will learn as you scour the globe for stories like the ones you're telling? So funny, as you were reading that list, I was like, wow, this really, <laughs> what is the thread here? But I have to say, I know it when I see it. I think I've gotten a sense of something that excites me and it excites me for the right reasons. I think when I was younger, I was more easily swayed. I was more easily persuaded. I hadn't really developed as skeptical an eye as I needed to. And that's not to say that I've sort of mastered it by now, but I think I look for people who are trying to fix the problems I see as most acute. So those would be access, those would be equity, those would include trying to view the whole child, I mean, just to sort of borrow a term, that includes the very well-documented evidence that shows social and emotional learning underpins academic success, and that doesn't work the other way around. So investing in relationships in schools, investing in social-emotional learning, in any context, it pays off. I just want to find examples of this all over the world. I think the big difference in the podcast 
from the journalism I've done in the past is it's very solutions oriented. And so I've had the benefit at this point in my career to instead of saying, I'm going to go after the bastards and the crooks, <laughs> you know, I'm going to take down the big institutions. I'm going to go after the big money in education, of which there's plenty, right? And there's plenty of stories to do there. And I really do hope people do them. But I think for a variety of reasons at this juncture, I'm excited to find solutions, people, and then ask how they figured it out. How did they tackle a problem? What did they do? How did that work in their context? What are the learnings that other people can take? How can those be shared? I mean, one of the problems I saw in education journalism is everything was so siloed, be it sort of the segments, ECD, K-12, higher ed, future of work, whatever you want to call it, lifelong learning. All of those are kind of segmented into their own world. And then the globe is segmented. You know, there's the global south and then there's sort of the U.S. and it's totally weird federated system in the U.K. and it's a very centralized system. But at the end of the day, every single corner of this planet is saying, what do we need to teach? How do we need to teach it? What is the role of technology? What is the role of families? What is the role of communities? What is the role of government? You know, these are quite universal questions. So I get inspired by innovations in different contexts of people trying to answer the question, how do we support young people to thrive in a very uncertain and very unpredictable world? I think that's the driving question I'm trying to answer. Well, and it seems to me it's a little bit like an equation. It's those solutions plus the relationships. Mm. When I think about our work here in this learning landscape of southwestern Pennsylvania and what Remake Learning has done, it's not just identifying the great ideas from around the world. And sometimes it's right down the street and sometimes it's halfway around the world in Finland or in Japan. Mm -hmm. But it's what is the relationship then that this community has to those people, to those ideas, to those organizations? genuinely investing in the relationships and the communities and the families as learning allies in ways that then power the opportunities for great learning. Jenny, we're going to give you a, a Harry Potter wand, make you the benevolent mm -hmm. uh, wizard here for a moment, because you're this wickedly smart journalist who is also uplifting now stories of solutions as you see them from around the globe. And as you yourself noted, you stand in a unique perch among folks in the field of education. So as you look at the things with which the world is grappling, and you've identified for us the roles of families and the appropriate use of technology and how we support young people to thrive, are there one or two things as you look ahead that really excite you that you would want the rest of us to be paying attention to? I just had a great conversation with Paul LeBlanc of the New Hampshire University. I've worked closely with Pam Cantor over the years. I think this idea of finding a way to prioritize relationships and make space for it in the timetable and institutionalize it in a building and make it happen is so important. And I think it can be done in any context because I think anybody can be trained to be an advisor. And I think reaching into communities and training parents and there's complications, but it can be done. It's being done in a lot of different places. To me, the advisor is the practical way of saying relationships matter and finding a way to make it happen in schools. That would be one thing. I would really like to just do away with soft skills and non-cognitive skills and call them power skills. I would like to rebrand non-cognitive skills, which is a totally absurd term, into power skills and really prioritize those in the curriculum. I think we need to help young people know who they are and how to navigate the world. And I do think that requires academics. And I do think that requires 
some testing. I'm not going to say we should ban all of that. But I truly believe we can make more space for kids understanding themselves and each other better. And we just have to be much more intentional about doing that. Jenny, we don't want to let you go without asking you about a new project you're working on. You're working on a book right now with a friend of the show and past guest here on Remaking Tomorrow, Rebecca Winthrop of the Center for Universal Education at Brookings. Can you tell us, maybe give us a sneak preview, what is that book about, who's it for, and how did you and Rebecca come to work on it together? When I left my job at Quartz, Rebecca called me and said, we need to write a book. And I said, no way, Jose. I wrote a book with another person. I'm not going to do that again. I really loved writing a book with Paula, but it's actually creatively, it's a tricky process, writing a book with two people. And she stuck at it. She said, why don't we just talk every few weeks? And, you know, suddenly we had a book proposal. And suddenly that book proposal was like 50,000 words long. And suddenly this seemed like a really good idea. And now it's a work in progress and it's really hard. The book is about student disengagement and what we can do as parents to help them get reengaged. And we are borrowing and plumbing learning science for answers to this. And we are borrowing from and plumbing some of the world's best educators for how practitioners do this day in and day out, what they've learned from their experience, from the art and science of teaching. We're talking to parents, but we're also really talking to students who have been completely disengaged with school. And obviously, disengagement can have a million different faces. Ultimately, I think what we want to do is turn kids on because they're wired to be turned on to learning. And so what does that take? Jenny, how can people keep up with you? How can they find out more about the work you're doing, get notified when the book comes out, and learn more about your podcast? They can find me on Twitter uh, at J West Anderson. They can find me on LinkedIn. They can find me on my website, JennyWestAnderson.org. Jenny, before we go, just one more question. What's one thing that parents and educators can do today to make tomorrow a more promising place for every learner? Talk to each other more. Parents and educators, talk to each other more. I don't want to undermine that it's very hard, in particular, I think, for teachers who aren't trained well to do it, and parents can be quite difficult. But I say that as much as a parent as I do as a journalist, because I also have two young children, uh, 12 and 14. And the thing I want more than anything is to know what's happening to them inside those buildings. I ask them, they tell me that that's one version of it. And I just want that added support and guidance and insight. And it's really tricky, but I do think that could unlock so much for both of us. Thanks again to Jenny Anderson, a veteran financial and education journalist, now host of the Learn It podcast. You can find her books wherever you buy them. Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning. Learn more at remakelearning.org.